Welcome, I'm Ryan Hicks, and this is Modern Business, the podcast to learn from franchise business leaders and explore new business technology. Our community is about sharing knowledge and tools that help us achieve our goals in business and beyond. Thanks for being here, and welcome to Modern Business. My name is Dean Hatsy Theodosio, and welcome to The Collective. So much we learn and hear about in franchising centers around the franchisor. But what about those who've invested and who've assisted in the success of that franchisor? What about the franchisee? More specifically, the multi-unit franchisee. This Modern Business Podcast segment is focused on multi-unit ownership and franchising. This podcast will feature some of the most active, successful, and growing multi-unit franchisees. We'll learn about their history, their business, their operations, and how they plan to continue their success now and beyond. Welcome, everyone, and let's get started on The Collective. Welcome, everyone, to the Modern Business Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Hatsy Theodosio, Senior VP of Sales and Business Development for Franchise Blast. This is a new segment of Modern Business called The Collective. This is actually the maiden voyage of The Collective. I'm very excited to be part of this new segment and also to join Ryan Hicks and the Modern Business family. With key segments like Women in Franchising with Ashley Schutz, The Nexus with Justin Mink, and Millennials in Franchising with Zach Fishman, Modern Business has already established itself as a leading podcast in franchising. The Collective is focused on franchisees, specifically multi-unit franchisees. With more franchisors adopting a multi-unit ownership model for growth, we're seeing a shift away from individuals buying a job or a one-and-done approach to business. We're seeing a steady expansion of multi-unit ownership with individuals or businesses that have growth and expansion on their minds and franchisors that are looking for responsible, aggressive, and stable franchisees to help with their expansion. Some quick stats, multi-unit franchisees control over 55% of all franchise units in the United States. Over 43,000 multi-unit operators control approximately 225,000 units in the United States. We'll be speaking with multi-unit owners and learning from them what drove them to franchising, how they operate their business, how they differ from their brands, and all that is involved in being a multi-unit operator. Let's get started. For our inaugural episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with the largest McAllister's Deli franchisee. For those who don't know, McAllister's Deli has over 400 restaurants in 28 states and is part of the Focus Brands family. I'm very excited and looking forward to this conversation. With me today is Adam and Matt Saxon of the Saxon Group. Welcome. Hello. How's it going? How's it going, guys? Things are well? We're fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. I'm so happy you both agreed to join me today. Uh, I know you're busy, so I really do appreciate it. Um, To get us started, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the Saxon Group? Gladly. So the Saxon Group, we are based in Dallas, Texas. We are a multi-unit franchisee, but a single brand franchisee. So all of our restaurants are McAllister's Deli. We had 87 restaurants in six states from our home base in Dallas uh, we have restaurants in Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, and Nebraska. And we're a family-owned and run business, obviously. Uh, my brother and I, Matt and I, are co-CEOs of the company. And we have uh, about 3,700 employees that help us, that we're glad to have on our team to help us uh, serve our guests in all those locations we just mentioned. Anything you'd add to that, Matt? No, I mean, you know, we are probably unique considering that we only operate one brand where a lot of large multi-unit franchisees um, have several brands under their portfolio. And we get asked that all the time, you know, why is the Saxon Group not gotten into another brand? And, you know, the really easy answer is that the brand that we're in currently, we still have uh, 
you know, green grass to be able to grow the brand. And it's been very successful. And we feel like that we understand the unit level economics. And um, it's, it's really proven, especially through the times that we're in now, that it's a, a very, very successful brand for the years to come. So we're kind of simple. You know, you pick a winning horse and you keep riding it. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, and in franchising, if you could find that winning horse and you can, you know, and you can ride it all the way out, then absolutely. Uh, it was, I was just about to ask you if you guys were looking at potential cross brand, uh, from a multi-unit perspective, obviously being part of the focus family, there's, uh, maybe a, a, an attraction per se, since they're already part of there, you're already a known entity, uh, into the focus family. So I was, just, I was about to ask if there's any, any interest or have you ever been approached even by some of the other brands, uh, to, to, to get an investment in there? Well, the section group is lucky enough that we are approached by every brand in franchising at some point or another that would like us to uh, develop their brand as well and partner with us. Uh, we've had conversations with Focus specifically very about some of the other brands, but not at any depth. And we've had conversations with lots of other brands outside of Focus about those brands. We're open to a second brand. We would be happy to operate additional brands given the right opportunity, but that just hasn't come across our our desk just yet. So. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, you know, being a family run business, do you find it easier or sometimes harder, obviously, you know, growing up with the same personality and then, you know, and then working together, do you find it easier or harder sometimes or, or depending what the situation is? You know, okay. you go first. <laughs> well, I, I, would, I would personally say it's a big advantage. Uh, and I think the number one advantage is that if you look across other companies and, you know, there's a lot of jockeying for positions or maybe doing something to strengthen one's career and maybe uh, get ahead within a company where, you know, for my, being my partner with my brother and, you know, our father is for us, we have a lot of trust and faith in the job that one's doing. So it really allows me to really concentrate on what I'm really good at without us overlapping at times and really causing confusion. So for, for us, I, I do think it's a big advantage and it, and it helps that we, happen to get along really well, both inside the workplace and outside of the workplace. I think it could be a big disadvantage if for some reason there's butting the heads or uh, control or power or even a relationship outside of the four walls here in the restaurant. I mean, at the Saxon Group, you know, uh, differs. So for me, I see it as a really, really big advantage for us. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can definitely see that, right? You're, it's a being a family-run business. It's a common goal, right? It's the success of the family, and and everyone's gaining it. Whereas if you were an independent contributor, or you have an independent contributor, they might be looking to try and expand out on their own, and 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 looking for uh, I don't want to say the word angles, but looking for ways that they can better themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. But being the family-run business, it gives you that advantage. So, okay, interesting. Um, any sibling rivalries? Any uh, inside inside the meeting room or the boardroom, anything like that? Sometimes, of course, yes. I mean, yes. That uh, nobody wants to me get on here and say that every single day is smooth sailing, and Matt and I never have the disagreements. Just like I would have disagreements with whoever my colleagues were from time to time. Sure. And truly, outside of what people expect, because we get asked this a lot, obviously, and outside of what people expect, based upon reality TV shows and some of the drama you might expect behind the scenes at a family business. We truly do not have that. We have a really strong working relationship. We are both really passionate about our people. That's the thing that I think drives both of us the most. So if we're both really passionate about our people and our team, we can't let whatever might be happening between the two of us on a given day get in between those 37 other people I mentioned at the start of the podcast. We have a job to do for them. 
And, um, but no, we have a, we have a great relationship and we have a lot of fun running the company together. And, um, we don't have very long resumes. This is the only thing either of us have ever done. So (laughs) it's hard to know. Uh, you only know what you know, but I know that I have a great time working with my family at the section group and, and Matt feels the same way. Right. So you mentioned reality TV. Have you guys approached, you know, Slice or Bravo or to do a, a Saxton Group family reality TV at all? I, I'm, call me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's funny. I saw the, my, my wife's big into the reality TV. She's like the real housewives of everything. Um, and um, I was watching one the other day. It just happened to be on. And it was, uh, it was about the Bush family in St. Louis, about the Anheuser-Busch family and talking about them. So... Anyways, it, it was it was probably the most interesting, probably because I like beer so much. So I was like, all right, well, the, at least this one's good. It's it's not as much drama. So we're not very interested, guys. So yeah, probably us. the cameras would probably get bored. There's not a lot of there's no drama. <laughs> you need yeah. drama. So, um, so um, how many? So from a structure perspective of the Saxon Group, like how many people do you have? Let's say on staff, and I'm obviously restaurant level. You're gonna it's big, but I'm talking more on the corporate side. How many are let's say field personnel and operations, marketing? Uh, do you do your own marketing? Do you follow what McAllister's has set out? Obviously on a national level, but then what do you do for local level? Uh, and, and what's that split from an employee perspective? Yeah. Um, so yeah, in the corporate office here, we have about 22 people. And so as you start to go after that outside of the corporate office here, we have what we call regional directors. So each one of those regional directors will oversee anywhere between seven and 11 locations. And so they're spread out 10 directors across our six different states. Uh, and then but after the regional directors, it goes to the uh, general manager inside the restaurant. Um, and then the marketing piece, go ahead. Yeah, we have... When it comes to marketing or operations or new products or real estate or really any aspect of the business, we have people on staff to cover that part of the business. Right. And you ask, do we follow what McAllister's does? Yes. But also, we like to plus that up a little bit. I'd say that is our main philosophy. We follow what the brand does. And then we try to execute that in the very best manner it can be executed. Okay. So if that has to do with rolling out a new sandwich or a new marketing campaign or what we're doing on Facebook or with new store openings, we follow the brand's toolkit. In many cases, because we've been around so long, we have worked with the brand to build that toolkit. But we try to add an extra layer of kind of make it unique to the Saxon Group and do a little bit more regardless of what that activity is. We have our in-house marketing department. We have a full in-house uh, IT department. And um, then obviously all the operational levels that go with uh, layers that go with operating the, the restaurants and the management teams inside those restaurants. So just on the marketing side, do you find, uh, or like obviously, you know, when you get together at, um, at the conventions and you're talking to other franchisees, and a lot of them probably looking up to you guys, you guys being, you know, the, the, the largest uh, multi-unit franchisee that McAllister's has. Um, do you find that you're able to do a little bit more, let's say, than some of the other ones because of, 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 the, of the position of where you're in? And it's not a bad thing. It's just, obviously, you're promoting the brand. So if I was... If I was the head of, you know, McAllister's, I'd be like, yeah, you know, anything you could do at the local level to help promote it, and uh, I'm all over it, for sure. I think, sure, that's easy to say now, but we've not always been the largest McAllister's franchisee or the 
but but we've always done things a little bit differently than the organization that we were a part of um, and always have tried to put our own spin on it. And I think the easiest way to look at that is we you'll notice anyone who talks about our company or our culture or if you talk to any of our employees, they are Saxon Group employees first. We have our own unique culture. We have our own unique way of doing things, our own way of hiring. And the, all, the type of talent that we look for is unique to the Saxon Group. And that is not all tied up in McAllister's Deli. McAllister's Deli is the brand that we happen to operate. It's the brand that we're very successful with. But we could also do something else or add a second brand or change or pivot or lots of things can happen in business. And sure. the people on our team, first and foremost, are on the Saxon Group team. And then second, the job that we're doing on this team is to operate and run and develop McAllister's. So I think that because of that, like that little subtle difference, you'll see lots of franchisees. And if you go to their corporate office or look at their email signature or look at their logo, even it's really kind of all wrapped up in the brand that they operate. Right. Um, for us, we try to draw pretty clear lines between the two things that the Saxon Group is a brand that we're super, super proud of and that we work and cultivate. And McAllister's is a brand that we're super, super proud of and that we work and help cultivate together with our franchisor. But the two things are not one and the same. Okay. And I think you know, Adam talks about you know, just how we trump things up and it's plus one. But when you talk about your just employee cultivation, really, we know this, the Saxon Group is going to be around for, we hope, many, many years. It's been around 20 plus years and we hope it's around another 20 plus years. We can't control what's going to happen with McAllister's, right? There could be an exit point. There could be a different brand that we go into that's much larger. But ultimately, if you keep people passionate about the Saxon Group first, then those people roll into these new brands and they share that same passion. Where if, if your whole identity is tied up into McAllister's, well, if somehow McAllister's, you know, stage exit left, then then at some point you lose sort of that employer retention. And um, we just feel like that having the sector as the main focus has really been beneficial for us from a branding standpoint for a, for a lot of years. And sort of add to, to help finish out your question that you originally asked, certainly our size and our scale allows us to be able to do more, certainly. But um, one of the reasons that we try to do that is because we have, I'm, Regardless of what happens with McAllister's or with whatever brand we were operating, I have limited control over that, right? I don't own the McAllister's Deli brand. The people sure. who work on the McAllister's Deli marketing team or the IT team or the operations team, they don't work for me. I have influence, but that ultimately that is outside of my control. So therefore, we try to make sure that if there's a lapse in the marketing department at our franchisor or somebody leaves or no one's going to call and ask me about that. You know, no one's going to right. say, Hey, what do you think about this by and large? But we have our own resources internally that can pick up anywhere where we feel like the brand might need a little help at any given time. Mm -hmm. And we're, and we're happy to have the scale to be able to do that and the resources to be able to do that. It, it's an advantage that's for sure. And, and that's a, that's an important point, right? And uh, you, you, you know, you attend all these webinars and seminars, whether it's through IFA or franchising and everyone talks about building up that brand. And I, I think obviously that you proven by the success you guys have, the Saxon group brand in and of itself is, is a recognizable brand uh, and people know it. Um, so building up that brand is, is obviously something, you know, very, very important. Uh, and, and I, I really like that approach. And, and I think that's, uh, that's something great for even upcoming multi-unit franchisees who are looking to try and whether they go cross brand or whatever, um, for them to be able to take note of. So, so that's a very important point. Piece of advice to new franchisees is 
remember in franchising, remember the business model that you have signed up for. Whatever brand you will operate will never be your brand. Right. The that you create to operate that brand and execute that brand, you own that. That is yours. So call, pay just as much attention to that as you do to the brand that you operate and the name on the storefront of your restaurant or retail store or whatever sector of franchising you're in. Um, and we've always done it that way. And I, I think it's made a difference. And I, I like talking to other franchisees that make sure that they're watering both plants, both the, both the restaurant, the brand that they operate, whatever that may be, but also the company that ultimately is the one that they have control of, which is right. their, their own organization. Would you say that being a multi-unit franchisee is almost like operating a franchise within a franchise? No, I've never, I've never thought of it that way. Um, I, you know, for us, we really keep it simple, and and you know, we we've repeated this model many times, but really, we can essentially just to you know really operate and develop. Those are the two things that we have control over within the Saxon Group. Like Adam said earlier, we, you know, we signed up with McAllister. We pay a you know, a royalty. And if we're not confident in McAllister's and we're paying a lot of money for somebody for something that we're not getting a lot out of. And so for us, we really just try to concentrate, you know, on the things that we can control. And uh, like, like we said earlier, those ultimately are the things that would have caused us to be so successful today is that we just really concentrate on things that you can control. Right. You know, Adam's the president of FAC and a lot of times he'll come back and you know, a lot of franchisees, they're trying to change the menu or, you know, they have the next greatest marketing idea. And it's like they're spending so much time on things that, quite frankly, is they really can't change. I mean, uh, the the fact has a voice within it, within McAllister's, right? But ultimately, it's it's those people that are employees for Focus Brands and McAllister's that makes the ultimate choice. And so for us, that's just white noise. And, and we know the things that make us successful. And we really try to concentrate the, on those day in, day out. Right. So yeah, Matt referenced McAllister's fact. So all franchising systems have that. That is what the board of franchisees are elected by their peers to advise and work with the franchisor on any given business initiative. And one of the one of the things that I've seen, because I've been doing that, I've been the president of that for a really long time. And one of the things that I've noticed as I've been doing that is that things are the most effective when the franchisors and the franchisees are truly working together. And that doesn't mean that there's not disagreements. That doesn't mean that franchise, there's this inherent push-pull is part of the nature of the franchisor-franchisee relationship. That's always going to be there, that tension below the surface. Sure. But, so, so let's just understand that, agree with that, but then also understand that our efforts, our commonality is making sure that the brand is as strong as it can be. Our customers are coming as often as possible and they're spending as much money as possible. That is that is the model of our business. So let's focus on those common goals and work really well together and disagree when we have to disagree, but not, so I know some franchise boards can turn into just basically a litany of complaints all the time about sure. here's what's going on X, Y, Z in my restaurant, in my local situation, in my market, or what my manager is saying. And that's not that's not productive for the system. And that's not what we're there to do. We're not there to represent what's going on at the Saxton Group or other franchisees. We're, we're there to make the system better and to work with corporate to make the system the best it can be. Nice. So the Saxton Group, you guys started out way back in pizza, correct? If I, if, yeah. And then, so uh, what? how much research went into looking at McAllister's like were there other options on the table and you guys did some due diligence or 
you know, was it just timing that they were looking, they were coming up at the right time? Like, what was that decision to shift from pizza into sandwiches? Not my research, kind of none, like every good business story, you know, <laughs> dumb luck. Uh, Matt, you can tell that story. Yeah, you know, Adam and I both grew up in Mississippi, in a small town called Madison, Mississippi. And at the time, we were in uh, the largest franchisee for Mazio's Pizza. And at that time, there was sort of an exit period for Mazio. So I would say that's sort of what started the appeal of looking for another brand. And, and the reason why we're with McAllister today is very simply is because we enjoyed and dined at the local McAllister's within our town. Oh, wow. Not, there's no market research. Remember, <laughs> we start, you know, we're you know, really second generation in this business is that it just was kind of a gut feeling. And, and my mom really enjoyed McAllister's. And I think she's ultimately the one that said, hey, Kelly, which is our dad's name. Hey, I really like this. We were looking. We already had business in Texas, which was Mazio's Pizza. And so we really could already site select based upon where those great Mazio's were. We knew that the brand McAllister's would inundate into those markets really really well. And so sort of as we ramped up McAllister's, the pizza business was sold. And then sort of that's the history of where we are today. So, um, yeah, not not. There's no document or paper that says this is a reason why we're here with McAllister's. We, we were, it. we were, we were customers, and we enjoyed it as a customer. And we opened our first hey. McAllister's in 1999. My dad had been in franchising his entire career. That's the only thing he's ever done as well. Our, we, we, growing up in our family, the family business was a part of our life. From the, there's never, there was never a time. People talk about this blend between work and home and family and it was all the same to us there was there was really no difference so we all at that time even when we were in high school i remember eating at McAllister's with my parents and talking about hey maybe this would be a good thing to do maybe and this is before really i don't know for sure but fast casual was a word or that idea of order at the counter and be seated and someone will take care of you from there was it was kind of a new thing Mm -hmm. And like McAllister's started in Mississippi. So we were in the right place at the right time from that standpoint to see that, to be exposed to the brand really early on, like a lot of franchise systems, those first units that were in Mississippi and Alabama and the adjacent States were sold to kind of friends or friend and family of the, of the founders. Uh, and we were neither. So I think when my dad uh, started to look for opportunity, he, uh, Texas was maybe kind of the closest place that was available to where we lived in Mississippi. And we, as Matt mentioned, we had some Mazio's development in this, in Texas. So, you know, we opened our first unit in Tyler, Texas in 1999 and grew, um, wow. throughout Texas and, and the Midwest from there. Nice. So I didn't, I didn't realize that, uh, the Saxon group, you guys, so you guys are originally from Mississippi and then transplanted into Texas. That's right. I moved to Texas in 2000 to go to SMU here in Dallas. And um, then um, Matt moved shortly thereafter when he started college. And uh, my parents moved uh, after we were both finishing up and out of college. And our business moved here officially in 2004, 2005. Nice. I'm not going to lie. So that's going to adjust some of my rapid fire questions at the end because I didn't realize that. And I... I have a lot of te- I have a lot of Texas questions. We've both been in Texas long enough to. I've been here twenty years. Matt, close to the same. We've both been in Texas long enough to. We kind of consider ourselves Texans now. All we right, are, fair enough. We are Cowboys fans. Yeah. Okay, good. There, so yeah. Um. So. I mean, it was, so we talked about that. There was uh, there was a, there was something that you were uh, that you were mentioning, uh, Adam, about you know uh, the story around it and stuff like that, and then building the brand. Um, 
so as you you know as a as a multi-unit franchisee like when you when you started uh, obviously you were multi-unit franchisees of, of Mazio's pizza uh and then obviously that was the goal what's the advice for let's say franchisees that are that have like a single unit and mm. are looking to try and get into it you know there are you know some some key things that they should be you know, looking for thinking of before they, they jump two feet in and then, and say, Hey, I want to buy five more units or whatever. Yeah. So a couple of things come to mind when you ask that, and I've had people in that exact stage come to me before. One thing that, that comes to mind is there's really no business that isn't improved by scale. There's I don't care if you're in franchising or anything else. So more scale, more usually improves business and make things better. But Success also breeds more success. So right. if you have one unit and it's not doing very well and you're not happy with its performance, the cure to that is not to go open five more. Mm-hmm. So I probably would call you, you find people who are in that, in that situation who say, well, my first one didn't do that well and I'm not making any money and it's a real struggle. But I think they, then there's this list of reasons why it is the case. I, before I went and did something else, I would make that first one as successful as I could be, really make sure I've mastered it and operating at the highest level that can be operated. And then let's go talk about number two, three, four, and five, six. So the more successful you are with your franchise, with your one unit, your two units, your five units, make sure you're always taking care of what's right there in front of you before you go worry about the next thing. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, I would add on to that, you know, Really, if you look at our growth, it's it's all from contiguous states. And so the Sasson Group has never made a, a, a big leap from Texas to Colorado or from you know Texas to Florida. It's really important, at least if you look at our operational footprint, you know, we've been able to be very close to the restaurants and close to the people. And so I think you see a lot of times these new franchisees are they'll get into one brand and then the next brand is a few states away. And it's just very hard to manage your business at a very small scale when you have restaurants that are not, you know, 500, 600, 800 miles away. And so I, we see that all the time where three stores in Texas and then three in Indiana. And, and, and I think just, you just lose so much efficiency by operating in, in such distances away right away. You can do that as you go on. We still don't believe in that model. We still like to have contiguous states. If you notice our footprint, everything yeah. is together. But I still think that that is a common mistake. People start off right away and, and try to jump around too, too far away. That, that's so true. That ties back into what we were saying about our culture piece earlier. Um, it's easy in franchising as you start to have some measure of success to be kind of distracted by the shiny new object. There might sure. be a new brand that is happening in franchising over here, and then, then there's another one over here, or I can make this acquisition up here. But that might not make that might that, that, that starts to spread yourself too thin just at the time when you're starting to have success and momentum with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I counsel people to stay focused on what they're doing. You can't build a company culture that's really tight, like we talked about earlier, and also have operations spread out all over creation. You can, it's easier as you get larger perhaps, but in the beginning, um, even for kind of mid-sized franchisees, I think it's really important to stay focused and to do what you said, what you started it out to do from the get-go before you start to go chase down other new opportunities. Yeah, and and that's this is very similar to emerging brands on the franchisor side, right? You see a lot of emerging brands; they have you know five units that they've that they've corporately owned, and and they want to get into franchising, but they're struggling finding either their first franchisee or maybe their second or third, and then they start thinking, well, maybe if I go, you know, depending on where you're located, if I go cross state or two states over, it might work. 
but then you hear the counsel of 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 their mentors or 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 people that have gone through that to say you know what stay in your backyard grow your business in your backyard and then once you can really prove it out start really pushing it out and then and going from there instead of like you said spreading across you know uh five different states and then really stretching yourself thin because the cost benefit of that is going to be through the roof right yeah, so. I think you know, on that is that emerging brands that are ready to franchise and would be successful franchises shouldn't be looking for franchisees. Franchisees will find them. So the ones Fair. that are out facing franchisees, they they just might not be ready for prime time just yet. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um so how much do you so obviously McAllister's has their own internal processes and, and we've already established that you guys manage your own brand and your own operations. Um, you know, that you manage your own restaurant operations and things like that. How much do you rely on what McAllister's does and do you use your own team to validate what they're finding or are you, you know, doing your own uh, franchise operations processes or restaurant operations and then using, you know, what McAllister's finding to validate that, like that, to to help boost, you know, unit level economics, uh, improve performance, brand consistency, uh, et cetera. Why don't you take that one, Matt? Yeah, I mean, if you look at what's to start at the restaurant level, um, yeah, there, there are processes, obviously, that we use from the brand, you know, really uh, recipes and initially the store design. But probably the past 10 years, I would say we sort of have gone our own direction as far as uh, square footage of a restaurant, as far as even back of the house software, our food cost software has been different. You know, Adam mentioned earlier, we were talking about IT. I think that's very unique. We have had an internal IT department for the past 20 years. And so when you talk to franchisees, a big headache at the franchisor level is dealing with IT, their point of sale system. Right. So for us, we've been able to actually control our own point of sale, which gives us a, a, a level up or a leg up um, above a lot of different franchisees. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there are things we use them for. I would tell you, since we're not the neediest customer for McAllister's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of other new franchisees that really uh, need the help. And quite frankly, Adam and I have been around much longer than any existing McAllister's employee. Um, you know, we've seen five or six brand presidents. We've seen multiple VP of ops uh, come and go. And so, uh, you know, when you, once you have 87 restaurants, you feel like you kind of have a knack for it. You kind of have an understanding on it. And that's why we talk about the concentration that we have is that uh, it doesn't, we do not rely heavily on the brand to really uh, dictate the success that we have. Distribution, mm-hmm. you know, when we're ordering food, that comes from the brand. Those are brand sure. contracts. I don't have any negotiation with Sigma. Mm-hmm. I'm not handling any of that process, you know, which mm-hmm. makes it easy. I, we, there are processes that Adam and I do not want to deal with. If not, why are we paying six plus percent to the franchisor, right? Mm-hmm. That right. doesn't make sense. It should be the Saxton's daily, not McAllister's daily. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that we do ask, but for the most part, we're pretty independent from the franchisor. But And I know not everybody that's listening to this podcast is going to be in that same position. So if I was to give advice about people evaluating new for a new franchise to go be a part of, or what we would do if we were going to look at a new franchise, there's things that you will always rely on, no matter how big you are. Matt mentioned one of them, that's supply chain. So if I was evaluating another franchise to, that the second group was going to go operate, I'd be meeting with the head of supply chain and I want to learn everything about that process and right. see how they have it and how strong they are and what their capabilities are that. Cause I know no matter what I do, I will always be reliant on them. And then the second thing is really in the area of food and R and D. I think um, research and development and food and that innovation pipeline 
Um, that'd be the other thing I'd be asking of a new franchise that we were going to be a part of because that menu management and making sure you're continually coming out with items that excite and delight the guests is something that we really look to our franchisor for. So for new franchisees, any brand that you're considering, um, it, if when you have one, those things are going to be super, super important. And when you have a hundred, those things are still going to be super, super important. So pay a lot of attention to innovation, R&D, and supply chain. Mm -hmm. So with over 30 staff that you guys have internally, right? And, uh, you know, at what point, so if, if I'm a multi, if I want to get into multi-unit, I have two people, right? I open up one restaurant. I didn't buy, let's say, a, a multi-pack deal or anything like that. I have one restaurant and then I just bought a second and a third. What, what are some of the key positions to fill initially as a, as a, as a emerging multi-unit franchisee? You know, for myself, I would say you need a great operator. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Adam and I both have an operations background, so we have a great understanding of uh, unit level P&L, right? It's important to understand the numbers behind that. But we also know that we've picked uh, a gentleman who's been with us now 20 years, really from when we started as well. And somebody that understands really how to maximize the dollar. And, and if you don't understand how to maximize the dollar at the restaurant level, then your growth will be slower. Like Adam said earlier, your first restaurant needs to be successful for you to go open another 5, 10, 15. And just so happens the first restaurant that we opened um, is, is a very, very successful restaurant today. So right. uh, I think finding that operations person, you know, day one, you're probably not going to have a VP of ops, you know, whatever that title is, that wonderful general manager that understands, you know, what it takes to be successful and food costs and labor. Those are all things that don't get talked about a lot, but around here, it's a constant conversation. I mean, we scrutinize and analyze P&Ls and income statements and really understand every single week from a day-to-day -day perspective on where we are at financially. So really understand the finances and the unit level economics. So, and you need a great operator to allow you to be able to understand that. And, and I, I, really I'm from the very beginning to start, even when you're very new, one restaurant, two restaurants, is to start building this bench of people that are going to be your, your team members so, and to take you to where you want to go. So start recognizing at that point, you're, all your talent's going to come from the restaurant level. So start recognizing the best talent within that restaurant and give them something else to do. I find that the right kind of people grow into the right kind of job for them. One of the things we're super proud of is at our really at general manager level and above, the second group is a 100% promote from within. We almost never make an outside hire. And that's because, and we have people who, many of the people who are vice presidents in our corporate office uh, all started at, as our employees in the restaurant, hmm. the, the vast majority of them. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, because, that's because we've always grown and we've always provided this ladder, this, this vision of where someone could go within their career. And you need Great. to make sure that, and that starts at the very beginning. That's the type of culture that would start from day one. So if you have one unit and you're about to open your second unit, I wouldn't go be placed, placing help wanted signs for, for your second unit to try to hire a general manager. I'd be pulling for that general manager from the first unit. And if you don't have a general manager to pull from the first unit, it might mean that you did something wrong and you need to go back right. and start paying more attention to how you're building your staff and cultivating your team and making sure that you have people that you can pull from to fuel your growth efforts. And until you have the people, then the growth is sort of secondary. And the growth right. is going to be less successful. It's just growth for growth's sake. You need to have that bench. That's a great, that's a great point. 
So big question that you guys are probably potentially fed up of answering and whatever. So how was, uh, how, what effect did the pandemic have on, on, on the Saxon group overall? You know, I think probably we were similar to most, right? Let's just go back to mid-March. Let's talk about spring break. That's really kind of where it hit for most people. So mid-March until beginning of May when there was stay-at-home orders and everybody was, you know, going to the grocery and not eating out, you know, it did affect our business, right? Um, but we are very fortunate that the things that have allowed us to be successful today were things that we were already doing before. And what I mean by that is let's use third-party delivery, right? Well, third-party right. delivery was not a new thing to the Saxon We were one of DoorDash's earliest partners, okay? And at the time, we just felt like that was sort of the direction a lot of the brands were going and, and really our customers were going, not because we expected sort of a, uh, you know, a, a general shift for our customers to be using right. as one. And so we had already had on-the-go stations within our restaurants. You know, if, if you go into our restaurants, we have cubbies already where your bag goes in based upon your uh, it's alphabetized, so your last name would be H. And so it's a it's a broad level where you know you go pick up your bag. Well, we started that four or five years ago. And so for us, the things that have made brands be successful, let's call it in the middle or post-pandemic, are things that the session have already set up. You talk about drive-throughs. You know, we have several locations with drive-throughs. We've been adding drive-through, uh, it's really pickup windows instead of a drive-through, is what we call it, uh, smaller square footage. Uh, the section has been building smaller restaurants for the past seven years bringing down our square footage because our customers are using us in different ways. 65% of our business now is coming outside the restaurant. When I say that, meaning not sitting down in a a seat, whether it's third-party delivery, that's call-in, that's internet, that's to-go. All those different things have just been exponentially upgraded since the pandemic happened. And so, uh, yeah, we feel like we're sitting in a very fortunate position and uh, a little luck along the way and a little guidance from Adam over the years of kind of pushing the brand in a different direction is really... uh, end up being treating us really well through this. So. And all those things Matt just mentioned are probably examples, are definitely real world examples of my biggest takeaway during the pandemic is that it's very, very difficult to pivot and to change in real time when something happens. It's very, very difficult to play catch up, in other words. Yep. So my biggest lesson from the pandemic is that we need to keep pushing our business forward and staying current and doing new things and embracing change and deploy new technology all the time, before a pandemic, during a pandemic, and after a pandemic, and whatever comes next. Because our next business hurdle, whatever that challenge is, we don't know what it will be. We sure. don't know another pandemic or something else, but we know there will be another challenge to our business somewhere ahead in the future. And without knowing what that is, I do know that if we continue to innovate and to stay current and to be really on top of our game, when it comes to the latest technology and giving our customers what they want and making sure that we're not falling behind in any areas, I know we'll be prepared for whatever, whatever will come next. Mm-hmm. But, to, but to do it all at once, when something happens and then react, plus you're kind of already in crisis mode, that's super, super difficult. It's, it's much easier to do things incrementally every day to improve your business than to try to pull that lever all at once. Right. It's an incremental build. If you look at our third party, right? Well, day one, when we started, third-party delivery, whether that's Uber Eats, you know, Grubhub, uh, DoorDash, it was $10 worth of sales, okay? And then today it's exponentially more. That was a slow build over time. So if you would have just started during the pandemic to come out with third-party delivery, that takes a long time for your customer years to be able to build and grow upon. And so, and another thing we, we joke and laugh about, we've, we've really normalized ourselves during this. We didn't have 
we follow local, you know, guidances and occupancy, but Adam and I have not taken this position on our opinion about what's going on within the, the world or, you know, really for us is, hey, if we can operate and run our business and we want to make that as normal as possible for our customers to enjoy uh, McAllister's and whether that's dining in or taking out, we've, we've, we've done that. We have not uh, chastised anybody for their opinions. We've not uh, run our business based upon our personal opinions. It's, it's We're open for business. So if you want to come in right. and want to have McAllister's a sweet tea, please come in and it'll be a safe environment and a great environment. We, we have not put additional pressures or parameters on our restaurants to make it harder to serve our guests. We're here sure. to serve our guests. And I think that's been important. And have been. You know, I think we made a conscious decision from the very beginning of the pandemic that we, we, I wasn't going to walk into work every day and make work be about COVID-19. Work is still about serving the guest who comes to McAllister's in whatever manner we are able to serve them at that time. And if that means that our dining rooms are closed, then we're going to talk about serving that guest in another manner, in a manner that we are able to serve them. And really focus on the fundamentals of the business and serving our customers and not, you, you, can't, you can't just live in pandemic mode day in, day out. Your staff gets tired of it. Your customers are tired about it. Your corporate office is tired of, about it. it. You need to go about operating your business, following all regulations, taking advice of the health authorities um, in all the local counties and states where we do business. And once you've digested and implemented that information, then just go back to the business of serving your guests. Yeah. And, and that's a really good uh, and a great approach to, to the business, obviously. Exactly. Don't, don't make your business about the COVID. And, and you heard about so many businesses that were looking for ways out or they were pivoting and they were trying to understand. Uh, it, it seemed, obviously, your, your, approach, your approach worked. Uh, you may have had uh, some slight advantages, let's say, than, let's say some full-serve restaurants that didn't have a drive-through uh, and stuff like that. But being, but staying ahead of the curve, uh, as you were like with third-party ordering, the drive-throughs, whatever curbside pickup, whatever it might've been, uh, obviously really, really helped. And, and that's, that's an amazing approach to, uh, to the whole pandemic. Um, you guys obviously had some expansion plans, uh, for 2020, uh, they may have been derailed. So potentially, uh, did you have to take a step back and look at, okay, well, we were looking at, let's say, more sit-down seats, but now because of the pandemic, are you rethinking how many seats you actually have inside, or it's still you know stay the course and we're gonna we're gonna plow forward exactly the same way it was? We have begun to right size our footprint for the, the way the business is today before the pandemic. Okay. So we were building restaurants with smaller square footage and less indoor seating and more accessibility options from pickup windows and curbside and to-go orders before the pandemic. So I would say this is just a continuation and really a confirmation that we were already um, on the right path. The COVID didn't magically flip the switch to the shift to the consumer's preference for off-premise business. It just accelerated it and brought everyone's attention to it. But that the consumer's desire to have meals away from um, off-premise and on the go and through pickup windows and through curbside and to order through digital channels, that has been happening for a number of years, and we recognize that and began to adapt our restaurants to it. So I, I, I don't think that we have made changes to the type of restaurants we were building uh, right before the pandemic to what we are doing, are doing now. Just sort of a continuation of, of trends that Matt and I had already seen, and we're building smaller restaurants than the rest of the system and making sure that we weren't building anything that didn't have a pickup window or remodeling anything that didn't 
that didn't have a pickup window or relocating things where a pickup window wasn't possible. We were doing all of that before. So the pandemic has just confirmed that we were on the right track. Yeah, and it, it didn't pause our development. Our, we have two stores currently under construction right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to be open in a week apart, October 23rd and around November 1st. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so, no, I mean, I think it's more than anything, it's an affirmation that we, uh, we have uh, chosen the right course. And when we talk about our square footage, you know, it's 35% smaller than they were seven years ago. Right. And it's been going that direction because like Adam said, that the consumer data has been telling us that DoorDash was not new to the SaaS group or we, we knew that that trend was going on. It, you know, it may be a doubled or two and a half times what it was, but it was still a significant seven to 10% of our business prior to this. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not looking at that data and understanding how your business and your customer is using you, then you can continue to just rest on your laurels and build the same thing that you've done. We've seen that with franchisees. Mm-hmm. Still building 4,000 square foot, 150 seat restaurants. Yeah, look around. What other fast casual brand is doing it? Look at Chipotle. Uh, you know, you can look at Chick-fil-A, even though they're QSR or whatever you want to call them. Well, they, they understand the business model. And you can tell that the way their business has been going for years, they're building smaller dinerings all to go, you know, all through the app. And so for us, we just followed that trend and, and it's, it's put us in a good position today. It's just, like I said, I think it, it, it sort of, put everybody, you know, five to seven years of where it would be prior to this. You know, everybody right. has different, you know, 10, 10 years ahead, 20 years ahead. We've seen this has been changing one or two percent. It seems like our customer using this differently for the past five to seven years. So mm-hmm. and we, we opened a restaurant during the pandemic, a brand new restaurant oh, wow. in Oklahoma City. We have multiple sites under constructions today. We remodeled restaurants during the pandemic. We just remodeled one recently and reopened it and we did several we made plans and agreements to add pickup windows to locations that did not have them during the pandemic. We continued our development operations throughout the pandemic. If the, our future development in the in the very short term could be a little bit slower, just because there was definitely a pause in the marketplace, kind of overall, as far right. as just the business of getting real estate done and looking at sites and shopping centers, marketing availability, and the broker community, and how much, how active they were and were working. So I could see that for ourselves and our other business, there, there could be a short window of some lost time there to kind of reset those efforts. But we've continued the development train moving forward and plan to, to do that as we always have. I think I, I don't, we didn't cover it at the start of the podcast when we gave our intro, but one of the things that we know is unique about this action group is we are have always built our restaurants one at a time. Most franchisees of our scale and side have, have done so through significant acquisitions along the way. And we have not done that. We are unit developers. We, uh, we build restaurants um, ourselves. That's what we do. And that is, I think, part of our culture is tied to that ability that we never folded in another company. We never went and bought a portfolio of 30 stores and merged them with this portfolio of 20 stores and tried to put those people together and those cultures together. We, we are um, kind of one at a time organic unit development is the way this action group has grown. And that's how we plan to continue to grow. Is that original? Uh, are you, oh, sorry, is that common within, within multi-unit franchisees or are you guys, are you guys kind of the uncommon? I think at our size, we're an outlier. Um, and 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 probably we get asked more about our ability to organically grow from within than we do anything else. Most people, when you see a company with 87 units, again, there's been a lot of acquisition act- activity to get to that point. 
um, even people with 50 units or 25 units. But if we have 87 units, that means 87 sites to pick, 87 leases to negotiate, right. 87 training teams to send in, 87 new general managers to hire, one after another after another. We did it all ourselves. So that has um, that's difficult, um, and that can be a uh, uh, hard way to do it. But if you're successful, that's by far the most profitable way to operate. Sure. And it is also really the only way to maintain as tight a company culture as we have done. So it's, uh, organic unit development is more profitable and is better from a company culture standpoint because you're constantly providing this steady drip of opportunity for your people. It's easy to buy restaurants. Yeah, I mean, that just takes money. Out. Yeah, it just takes money. Where the way we've done it, it's very, it's very, very difficult. And yeah. Adam and I are, you know, the ones that are behind the real estate and the growth of the construction. It really takes you got to sign on the dotted line. Yeah, you know, talks about that when you're signing every single lease individually. You got to be confident, and and we're fortunate that we've picked a lot more winners than we have losers. And so, um, I think though the reason why we found that success is because we concentrate on one brand. When we go back to that again, I think if Adam was out looking for sites for four or five different brands, you can do it, but you can't grow the way we've grown. You have to make some big acquisitions because there's just not enough time in the day to to be uh, understand each business model the same way that you understand the palace. When you picked, you know, eighty plus sites, you sort of kind of have a knack and a feeling on on what a site should look like and how big it needs to be and the unit level economics as far as how many people I need and, and, and so on and so forth. And so it just, it's, we've become experts at one brand. Right. I'm not saying we're great at doing anything else because quite frankly, we're, we're really unproven, but I do believe the Saxon group is great at running McAllister's Daily. Yeah. I joke sometimes I've signed more McAllister's Daily leases than anyone in the world. And that's true. <laughs> just even the fact that I signed our leases and uh, we have more units than anybody else and have done them all, you know, kind of one at a time. So you definitely get a feel um, as you begin to grow and develop a brand for what it takes to make that brand successful. And I think our focused efforts um, have, have paid off there. Right. So I want to go back to uh, Matt, you mentioned, you know, as far as KPIs and analyzing data and stuff like that. Uh, obviously, Focus Brands has, you know, they're, you know, a, a very large and massive organization that they have their own entire IT departments. McAllister's is very large. So you guys say that you have your own IT department that you can do things somewhat on your own. Uh, how much do you follow the same technology that McAllister set out, sets out? And how much are you, you know, moving, uh, finding your own ways of doing things? And from a KPI analysis perspective, obviously, you guys need to look things uh, very differently than McAllister's does, but how much of it is similar? I know that's kind of a loaded question or a very large question, but maybe you can expand a little bit on that. Yeah, you know, just speaking on the IT side, just for for instance, one thing we can do. So if you go into a typical franchise or uh, controlled IT uh, restaurant, they're going to look, you have something called the point of sale that you know about, okay? Well, there's an imaging on that point of sale that the customer does not see that the the, um, the employee sees, right? It's how your button placement is, right? How I categorize that. When you're placing an order, if Dean comes in and gets a McAllister's a club, well, the employee has to find where the club is and then add the side where we can control exactly how we want that to look. We can add upsell techniques into that, right? So before you can move to the next screen, our employee has to say, would you like to have a cookie today? Or would you like a sweet tea today? And so 
that maybe sound really little, right? Just the imaging on how the employee actually sees, but it's really, it's really something that gives us a, a big advantage of really being able to operate on the go and on the fly and be able to make changes instantly where if you're relying on the franchisor, you submit a ticket, you maybe get a response back a week later and you right. any of those personalization. Matt Saxton might want it to look a certain way, but quite frankly, it's going to look the way they want it to look. And so, it, you know, little things like that, I think, go a long way just of having your own department and being able to, you know, make changes very, very quickly. And, and what, one of the things he's highlighting there is you got it when you think about, again, that nature of franchisor versus franchisee and the difference between those two things. Every single person who is a franchisee is an entrepreneur. And every single person who is a franchisor and who works for a franchisor has taken a different route with their life and is more of a corporate uh, executive type person following the corporate ladder. So those are not the same types of people necessarily. Those types of people are usually cut from very different cloths. So franchisees are very willing to test and learn and figure it out as they go. And corporate, like we all know, just takes longer. It just, it just takes longer to, uh, and, and they need to, because they need to make sure that they prove that out before they roll it out for the system. So having some of those resources for ourselves and things that we're able to do for ourselves have just allowed us to be a little bit more flexible and right. test and learn and figure things out um, for ourselves a little bit more and test on behalf of the brand many times, many times we're testing things for the brand that we would not be able to if we didn't have that flexibility and those capabilities. In right. Our- Right, right, right. Not a new technology that we're coming up with or finding, but it's usually an idea. Maybe it's a mobile point of sale, right? They're talking about, well, we can go test that in one restaurant very quickly with it, maybe within four weeks and have that up and running. And hey, we don't have to put a lot of resources towards that to test it. And if it doesn't work, big deal. It's, 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 we're, we're going to yeah. you know, cut it and move on. And so the nimbleness it allows us to do is just, I think, is, is really a, a game changer for us. But many things, that products that have come out, products, technology, hardware, vendors, whatever it might be, whatever aspect of the business we might be talking about, that came out of our willingness to test and be flexible and learn on the fly were short, quick tests, proven out. And those are things that are now institutionalized and in place at the brand across the system today and have been for a long time. So yep. I know that our franchisor and all good franchisors appreciate when they have a partner in a franchisee that is willing to test and try new things because it, you know, it's like the old Egg McMuffin story at McDonald's. The best ideas always come from franchisees and their best franchisors listen to those franchisees. Right. Have you seen, or what What have you seen as far as the biggest change from a multi-unit ownership perspective from 20 years ago, and even from the from Mazio's days and pizza, from that to where we're at today? What has changed about franchising, about the nature of multi-unit franchising? The nature of multi-unit franchising or about franchising in general, like back you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, was, was it uh, odd to say that you wanted to be a multi-unit franchise? Like it, even from the franchisor perspective, a lot of franchisors may not have seen it as, as an advantage, but they wanted maybe all independent operators. Has that changed? Has, you know, like, and what's been some of the biggest changes that you've seen over the last 30 years? I think that the sophisticated nature of modern business has definitely lend itself to scale and created a preference for scale. So I think that if there was a preference early on in the days of franchising for smaller units, I think that the efficiencies that you get with scale and 
fewer franchisees with more sophistication and more units is probably the model that most franchisors would like to follow today because it just, it, it, everything is so competitive and it's so competitive and it's also really, really fast. So it's hard to move quickly when you have a team of a thousand to move, an army of a thousand to move. It's easier to move quickly when you have a team of 20 to move. So I think that this idea that we can do more with fewer partners who are larger and better capitalized and more experienced, I think that that is definitely the way our industry has moved. Okay. Last question before we get into the rapid fire section. What are, what are you most proud about about the Saxon Group brand uh, and as well as the McAllister's brand? You know, I think, I think for me, it's the people. You know, we talked about that at the very beginning. The reason we are sitting here today is because the people that work for us and the culture that we've created and cultivated over the years and um, the opportunity that we've given, like we said, if you look at our uh, corporate office here, our VP level, and even below that director level, those are all hourly employees. That's somebody that started at, you know, $6 an hour, five seventy-five an hour when, when they first started. And so the opportunity that we were given uh, or earned now, uh, we've also been able to pass that on and grow into what we are today and uh, have a lot of fun along the way. So, yeah, the, the people piece for us, I mean, it, it's really everything. It's the culture. Um, it's the fun nature that we have up here. It's the reason why when our office closed during uh, – the start of the pandemic, we were closed for about a month and we gave people the option to come back to work. We've been here, we've been back to work for months now. Uh, 19 out of the, you know, 21 people came back the second the we allowed them to come back. Could. Yeah, it was not like wow. a question. Of course we're coming back. There's no, that's, what that is, is that's not because they were just sick of sitting at home. That's because they really love what they do. They like the loyalty and they're, they're in this for the brand. And so that right there alone just shows you just the type of people that we've, we, you know, we've, we've bred and, you know, we, we talk about all the time, we're a little inbred. There's not a lot of diversity here at the Sash Group because everybody here has come within the restaurants, right? It's right. all the employees and, and they're, they've risen the ranks onto where we are today. And so the people piece, I'm, I'm very proud that we've, we've been able to give those opportunities over the years. Nice. And the thing about the McAllister's brand that I'm the most proud of is our commitment to the guest. The things that have always stood out about McAllister's is this genuine hospitality and the way that we like to take care of guests in a really personalized manner. And I'm super, super proud that we've been able to find new and innovative ways to serve that guest through digital channels, through technology, and not lose that connection with the customer. People many times ask me that they're worried that the more ways you take orders digitally or the more apps or the more technology you add to your restaurant, you lose service. And I have a super strong standpoint that serving the guests how they need to be served for that moment, for that occasion, is the very best kind of service. So right. sometimes that occasion looks like coming up to the counter and chatting with the cashier and smiling and sitting down and having a long leisurely lunch. And we love to serve you during that occasion. But we also know that that occasion sometimes means that I need to order quickly on my app and run in and pick it up and go. And that too is genuine hospitality when you're able to serve that customer um, at that need. So I'm happy that as we've evolved, as we've added technology, we today McAllister can serve the customer whenever, wherever, however, but we still remain committed to uh, genuine hospitality and making that guest feel like that a really personalized experience. Nice. Awesome. All right. Are you guys ready for the rapid fire part of the, part of the oh, interview? Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So we're sitting here with Matt and Adam Saxon of the Saxon Group, and we're just going to go through some rapid fire questions. 
So typically we would be 10 questions, but because there's two of you, we're going to do more. There might be maybe a few, we might be into the teens or 20, but anyways. Okay. So you both can answer. How old were you when you first got involved in franchising and what was your first job? Uh, I was 15 and I got my learner's permit to deliver pizzas because that meant I got to drive earlier. Nice. I was 15 and I was Mazio's Pizza kitchen staff. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to drive early and I wanted to make pizzas. So, yeah, 15. Awesome. What is your second favorite brand at Focus? <laughs> 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 I'd say Cinnabon. I'll go with Cinnabon yeah, too. Yeah. It's, All right. Fair enough. They got a great product. Yeah. But we love McAllister's. Yeah. Our our the the thing about Focus brands we care about is McAllister's Deli. And Dean, we are the largest Focus uh, franchisee as well. Not just the largest McAllister franchisee. I did know that. I yeah. did know that as well. Um, are we speaking? I think, Focus, I think McAllister's, and I don't think much else. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Well, that's why I said second favorite brand. I didn't say <laughs> I didn't say first. I like a cinnamon roll. Okay. Right. Um, tea or lemonade? Tea. tea. Sweet or unsweetened? Half and half. Half and half. Half and half. All right. Have you ever used McAllister's? Uh, sorry, say again. With lemon. With lemon. All right. Have you ever used McAllister's beverages for cocktail mix? No, but we've uh, we used the McAllister's lemonade bubbler to make margaritas. For sure, we've done that. Yeah, so we we, we took an extra lemonade bubbler that Coke supplies <laughs> at, and turned it into a giant uh, where we were having a party uh, margarita machine at the house. So, That's yeah. awesome. I think that I feel like maybe one. You know, they sell that sweet tea flavored vodka, and I feel like one time. Um, I might have tried to mix that with McAllister's tea, but not with any, any regularity. No, I think that McAllister's famous sweet tea is best enjoyed as McAllister's famous sweet tea. All right, fair enough. I I, I like my vodka lemonade, so I'm all, okay. I, you know, I'm okay with that. I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. Um, obviously, I know your McAllister's uh, boys threw it in your blood DNA. Burgers or sandwiches? sandwiches? Sandwiches. All right. Greatest Dallas Cowboy of all time. Emma Smith, Troy Aikman. Ooh, same, same, same generation. I like that. Well, I mean, that that's sort of the last generation that you know. <laughs> that's the last time they were good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's tough to be a Cowboys fan it sometimes. Is. It is. It. What? But, but you know what? I give you guys credit because you always think you're going to win the Super Bowl every year. It re- yeah. It's press the reset button. Here it comes again. Eternal optimists are Cowboys fans and franchisees. Yep. Yep. Start the uh, start the parade early. Um, with Thanksgiving coming up and the Saxon family being, you know, a very large family, uh, who's hosting? Um, usually we all get together at my parents' house. We're still pretty traditional in that way. But we definitely get in the kitchen and fight about cooking and who can do it best. Because not only are uh, we both in the restaurant business, we both are really passionate and pretty accomplished home cooks. So we always argument about who's going to do the turkey and who's got the better method. And we've had many times where there's competitions and everyone's doing the turkey. And Matt and I have some newfangled way. And truth be told is my mom, the way she's been doing turkey for the past 40 years probably still beats us every time, despite what we read in Gourmet Magazine that month. The turkey in the bag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> electric plug-in roast. Or like sous vide the turkey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wrapping it in yeah. parchment paper. Reverse giving it a massage. Yeah. Putting yeah. butter in. Yeah. 
you know. Do sous vide turkey. That would be a massive pot, though, and a massive bag to drop that thing in there. You just do the thought. You just got to break it down. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Um, Who's carving the turkey? Not me. Kelly. Not our dad. Yeah, he's he's up there. Yeah. Yeah. We're the eaters. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Did either of you have to take any uh, cotillion classes? Uh, 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 Manners. Yes. Uh, Still working on it. (laughs) Those are not needed in the restaurant business, right? Well, fair enough. Fair enough. We're we're pretty well mannered. All right. So we talked about football. So Astros or Rangers? Rangers. Doesn't matter? Um, All right. Rangers is local, but yeah. So did you guys partake in any Friday night light games back in Mississippi? Yeah, we both yeah, we, we, I, we were both over six feet tall and grew up in Mississippi, so they said, "Hey, put on a football uniform." Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we both played we both played football in high school. Yeah, our that uh, was a better football player than we were. Yeah, both our parents were accomplished co- collegiate athletes. Okay, uh, Adam and I were neither accomplished co- collegiate athletes, but yeah. uh, we tried. We did our best. Yeah, and and what sports did your parents play? Football, and my mom played basketball. Oh yeah. wow. And what positions did you guys play in football? Uh, I played tight end and defensive end. Uh, I played defensive tackle. And I'm, okay. again, a million years ago in high school at a yeah. small school at a small town. We so. thought we were we were thought we were good, but there was only 22 people on the on the team. I came to um, I moved to Texas and met kids who went to these big high schools, and they talked about tryouts. And uh, our tryout was like, you got a pulse. Yeah, if you can afford pads, you're on the team. <laughs> So, hey, some franchisors do that with franchisees. Are they breathing? Just take them. <laughs> <That's laughs> <That's true. laughs> um, favorite movie? Goodwill uh, Hunting. Oh, man. I'm not much of a movie guy, more of a document. You know, uh, yeah, Goodwill Hunting's great. I actually watched it a few months ago. So I'll, I'll hop on that bandwagon as well. All right. It, the little brother always copies the big yeah, brother. Yeah, I'll copy the big brother. He's got the good ideas. <laughs> I'll go with it. Favorite actor? <sighs> Hollywood's a mess these days. Yeah. I'll go Brad Pitt. I'll, yeah. Fight Club. I love that movie. Great movie. Right, yeah. yeah. I'd probably say Matt Damon. Again, Goodwill Hunting, but I like a lot of Matt Damon movies, so I'll go with Matt All Damon. All right. So th- this question was based because I thought the family was based out of out of Texas. So we're going to have to go well, with We it. are all here today. So. Fair enough. So who from the Saxon family is the best cowboy or cowgirl? I, I'm, I'm probably the best cowboy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely. Yeah. I'm the most. I'm the most rustic. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I have cowboy boots. Does that count? <laughs> hey, I live. I live in Canada, and I had cowboy boots. So oh, yeah. I don't they, know. It doesn't make me a cowboy. They've never. They've never been muddy. Though. Oh God, no. Yeah, they stay. On, they stay on the pavement. <laughs> Mine get off road occasionally. All right. Yeah. Um, steak or Texas barbecue? Um, I. Uh, Let's maybe we can mute this for the for the Texans, but I'm not a big fan of Texas barbecue. I much prefer the barbecue where we grew up in the Deep South and the pork-based barbecue. And um, I think growing up in Mississippi, the barbecue was uh, superior to what we have in Texas, despite Texas's reputation for barbecue. Yeah, there you Texas go. It's all about brisket. Kansas City. I like yeah. a little sweeter sauce, so yeah. you get Kansas City, more Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, but listen, we we both. I love barbecue, so we still eat a lot of it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, in Texas, you can't get pork really. It's mostly, yeah. it's, it's the last, you know, it's, sort of, yeah. it's not as focused. Right. I, I agree with everything you said. And I, I have some really good friends in Texas and I love Texas, but I, I like Kansas city barbecue. Uh, I, th- I, I like a little bit of the sweeter sauce. Good. Carolina barbecue is pretty good too. I don't mind that. So if we were to speak to an Oki, uh, Oki uh, say that Oklahoma has better steaks than Texas. Is that true or false? Better steaks overall. Like, their beef is better. They say. No, I probably wouldn't agree with that. I think Texas. If there's one thing the they do really well, the beef is pretty good. The beef is good. We talk about. I mean, I will say, you can get great beef at your local uh, grocery store here, and so I'm I'm going to go with the the beef in Texas for sure. All right. Last business, question. Yeah, business there as well. So <laughs> yeah, I mean Oklahoma really we do love that as a state. I mean, it, it's one of our best states. So yes. All right. Last question. Who would win in an arm wrestle? Uh, I'm gonna go me. Should we do it? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'd love to see that. It'd be, maybe it'd be a good duel. I, I don't. I don't know. It might be. It might be fairly close. We'll yeah. give. We'll give it to him. Sure. He's, he's got a couple years younger, a little fresher. <laughs> I, th- I, I, I would really win is our dad would be both of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. There you yeah. go. Arm wrestle. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time and speaking with me today, and also uh, for being my uh, my initial uh, friends on the, on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. I know you guys are busy, so uh, so thank you very much. And again, you know, I'd love to have you guys back on again. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening in and uh, and enjoying the uh, enjoying this conversation for sure. So thank you. Sure. Thank you Thanks very much. Me. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Um, all the best to your families. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Uh, continued success to you both and to the Saxon Group. And uh, I also thank you on behalf of Franchise Blast as, as continued uh, partners and friends for a long time. So, uh, again, thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Hopefully at the next IFA when we finally get to meet each other, we'll be able to have that arm wrestle to see who will win. <laughs> we'll in the there. meantime, everybody go enjoy a glass of McAllister's tea. It's yes. been a great Thanks, Dean. Thanks, Dean. Appreciate you. Thanks, Bye. guys. Take care. Bye-bye.